<laughs> I'm telling you, Flanders' store was deserted. So what do you think of your bestest buddy now, Marge? Dad, do you know what schadenfreude is? No, I do not know what schadenfreude is. Please tell me because I'm dying to know. It's the German term for shameful joy, taking pleasure in the suffering of others. Oh, come on, Lisa. I'm just glad to see him fall flat on his butt. He's usually all happy and comfortable and surrounded by loved ones, and it makes me feel... What's the opposite of that shameful joy thing of yours? Sour grapes. Boy, those Germans have a word for everything. Glop Culture is brought to you by Harry's Shave. Do you have someone on your gift list that is impossible to shop for? That guy in your life who has everything. Have you considered gifting razors? How about a Harry's razor? Harry's Winter Winston set is only $30 for a sleek chrome razor, three high-quality blades, their amazing foaming shave gel or shaving cream. It's already wrapped. Shipping is always free. Use the coupon code GLOPHOLIDAY at checkout. So welcome to the Glop Culture that Podcast. That was very well done, John. Thank you. Do, you. you do, I, I, I suspect that at some point you heard me laughing. I but I want to say that laugh. I was not – okay, that's good, that I wasn't you were laughing. laughing. Yes. That is, of course, Rob Long, the proprietor, one of the proprietors of Ricochet and Hollywood Bon Vivant, Man About Town, though he is currently in New Orleans, Louisiana, another place where it's great to be a Bon Vivant. Hi, Rob. John, how are you? I am well. And Jonah Goldberg, of course, with us in Washington, D.C. Jonah unmasked earlier this week. By Amazon as the secret author <laughs> of biographies of Harry Truman, Stephen <laughs> Harper. Right. And, you know, if, if they had unmasked you, Jonah, as the author of a secret biography of Stan Lee, maybe that would have made a little more sense than Stephen Harper. Because as you pointed out to me in a conversation, you are the person who wrote an entire cover story in National Review magazine denouncing the nation of Canada. That's true. That's true. It's actually called Bomb Canada. And uh, and I want to say, this is, you know, I mean, this is something all three of us have some experience with. Um, and I'm actually more of a fan of Canada than I let on. But, you know, anyway, that's a different topic. Everybody uh, is, though. That's, that's, everybody feels that way. Well, it's like, look, vanilla is everyone's second favorite flavor. Right. <laughs> um, but, um, so, uh, but all of us can appreciate, at least in this podcast, about the, 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 the healthy tension the, between the pressure from advertisers and the need for yeah. editorial independence, right? And so that piece that I wrote for National Review, um, which I always felt bad about because it had a picture of the Canadian Mounties on the cover, um, and Rich put the word wimps right across the front. Oh, you can't do that. Because the Canadian Mounties are actually the good guys in Canada, and I want their culture to be more like that the way it used to be with those guys. But anyway, um, this was – and I never said that we should kill any Canadians. I think we should bomb some like radio towers, just sort of a shot across the bow to get them to stiffen uh-huh. up. And um, But there's a lot of anti-Canada mockery. Anyway, that was – that issue – this, this, anti, this anti-Canada mockery that you're not sorry about. That's right. A boot. Um, <laughs> a boot. A boot. A boot. Not sorry, a boot. Yeah, and, I, um, went to, uh, I, I went to what? camp in Canada. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Hold on, sorry. We're almost done here. So <laughs> that that article appeared in what I believe was the inaugural run 
of what was supposed to be a year-long advertising buy from the U.S. Canadian Friendship Society. <laughs> <laughs> and no one on the editorial side knew that it was going to be running, and we planned a cover story just crapping all over our neighbors to the north. Um, so the, that advertising buy dried up pretty quickly. So now, anyway, you went to camp, John. Tell I us went about to camp. I went to camp in Canada when I was eight and nine years old. Camp White Pine in uh, Halliburton, Ontario. Uh, I think and we should the- all just pause for a minute and close our eyes and get a mental picture of little John Bedoritz going off to camp. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, miserable. I hated it. But um, oh, the most interesting shocked. thing about – the most interesting thing is this was 1969-1970. And 10 years later, uh, the camp in Meatballs, that was filmed at Camp White Pine. So you have seen wow. my bunk. You have seen Bill Murray. You have seen you have seen the uh, camp director floating on uh, what, what it was called Lake Placid. Actually, a lake called Lake Hurricane that Camp White Pine renamed Lake Placid since Lake Hurricane wasn't going to look good in the materials for nervous parents sending their kids up to northern Ontario for camp. But uh, so I, I was, in fact, one of the uh, one of the campers at uh, at the meatballs camp. Did they serve you some kind of beef? Some kind of beef. The winner, the the winning item, the winning item, of course, in the uh, in in that that night's trivia contest on what what was the mystery food. And you know, Rudy the, the Rabbit. Balls. Rudy the Rabbit is like an insurance salesman or something in Canada. Like he uh, wow, he completely like, walked away from his acting career. And of course, Rudy well, I don't the Rabbit walked away. Rudy- <laughs> <laughs> well, Rudy the Rabbit then starred in My Bodyguard, a film featuring Hollywood conservative Adam Baldwin. In his I know. First that was actually one of my role. favorite movies as a kid. And, that's that. right. And now Adam Baldwin is, of course, a stalwart uh, uh, conservative and fan of this podcast, I believe, and, and <laughs> follower. Not anymore. Of, not after this. No, not after what? We're praising Adam Baldwin that's and his true. fine performance. Currently in uh, the last ship on TNT, I believe. Anyway, so which is actually a really so, good show, by the way. It is a good show. Uh, I didn't expect it to be, but it really is. Yeah. So, um, gentlemen, uh, it is hard to know where to go uh, if you are uh, a person of the right at this moment in terms of the stories that are making news that just make you feel wonderful Get, and now, full yeah. of Schadenfreude. Did anyone feel strange today or yesterday when um, we, we, the news was sort of taken over and we stopped talking about uh, the delicious implosion of the New Republic or what's happening at Sony or the Rolling Stone implosion and talked about an actual spending bill? I kind of no. felt like, hey, can we just put that aside for now? I'm, I'm still having fun with the other stuff. Yeah, well, and you know, but but because the spending bill had, as Jonah and I were trading – Barb's on Twitter about it all had the single most ridiculous name in the history of all of politics, a name requiring the cromnibus, yeah. a name requiring ten thousand parodic tweets, most of which having many of them having to do with uh, Conan the Barbarian, whose uh, god is of course named Crom, and who does not, whose god is Crom, and Crom does nothing for you. That is the big selling point of Crom is that he doesn't care about your prayers. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, just, I, just, I think it's just a wonderful little tweet. It's great. 
Um, I, I would like to point out that the film version of Conan the Barbarian, not the not the pulp uh, novels by the sad, weird Texas shut-in uh, Robert Howard who killed himself at the age of 30 in the 1920s, but but the film was written by none other in the in the great Hollywood tradition of cross ideological, uh, you know, cross fertilization was directed by lunatic Hollywood right winger John Milius, but right. written by lunatic Hollywood left winger uh, Oliver Stone, who uh, contributed maybe the greatest line in all of Hollywood history to the dialogue when uh, Conan is going somewhere. And uh, comes upon the evil group that's led by James Earl Jones, the movie's villain. And a guy says, you know, two or three years ago, they were just another snake cult. <laughs> Which, if you think about it, it's like, a, yeah, they're just another snake cult. But now, everywhere. Look, now, they're done. everywhere. And, uh, you know, because they did you know, all of that while Crompton did nothing. You yeah. can imagine sort of in an ancient Sumerian Jewish deli. Two guys sitting around saying, you know, a few years ago they were just another snake cult, but now they're everywhere. Oh, they were. <laughs> Who were they? They were nothing. Um, now they're everywhere. But then, you know, if only I'd known, I could have put a few dollars into it. Yeah, I would have helped out. I would have helped. I will say, though, as, as just to ensure my geek cred for this podcast, I, won't, I don't have to do anything else geeky on this entire podcast, that Thulsa Dune, the the god, uh, the, the villain from the Conan movie, right? Yeah. Um, was played by James Earl Jones. Was I believe actually the villain from Cole the Conqueror that they just adopt? They just took because it was a cool name and put in Conan. I could be wrong. I will take Plagiarism. my I will take my corrections in the comments uh, at ricochet.com. Now, by the way, totally off, insanely off the point. There is actually Wait, there, we, there's a point here. <laughs> there's, no, there's no point. My point, and I am going to find it, but totally off the point. There is a wonderful, wonderful little tiny little movie called The Whole Wide World with Vincent D'Onofrio and the and Renee Zellweger, who was then just emerging as a as a performer in the mid '90s, um, about Robert Howard, the 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 man who wrote Conan. And this woman that he started uh, corresponding with, a school teacher in Texas, and the sort of sad story of his of his life and how he, you know, how he did himself in before he ever had any idea that he had created something, you know, right. enduring. Um, and it's a really, really nice, interesting movie. I don't know if it's on Netflix or anything, but if it is, it's really well worth looking up. Called the Whole Wide World. Anyway, so let's get back to the wonderful Sean Freuda. Cromnibus knew. So on the on the one hand, the Cromnibus, of course, uh, passed the House. Um, it, it having uh, almost divided, but not Barely. totally divided the 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 Republican um, uh, coalition. And an interesting thing happened. Right, the interesting thing that happened was that finally, 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 Obama was required to go and twist Democratic arms to pass right. a piece of legislation and not leave. The Republicans to do his you know, solely to do his bidding. So fifty or sixty Republicans voted against the bill, and sixty or seventy Democrats voted for it, even though they wanted to do what they always do and have no votes for it. And now it goes right. to the Senate, and it appears that what we are watching in the Senate is the birth 
of the Elizabeth Warren presidential campaign. And I say that because she decided she was going to go out, stand up against this bill and say that there should be – basically say there should be a government shutdown rather than pass this bill because there's stuff in it she doesn't like for Wall Street. And this is a very eerie parallel to Barack Obama voting to shut the government down in late 2006. Um, uh, one of the one of the moves that he so made would, that a lot of people really made. Eerie? Did you say eerie parallel? Well, okay, it's not eerie. <laughs> it's not I, eerie. Was, I, I wanted to use an adjective, and I couldn't yeah. think of a better one. Right. Amusing, well, amusing no, parallel. Amusing, what eerie what parallel. What you could have said is that Elizabeth Warren is trying to count coup here. <laughs> is a, someone will remember that this is an American Indian phrase, but anyway, yes. go anyway, on. So no, but so basically, she is now following the Obama playbook. She is deciding right. she is going to come out from the left against actions that are being taken in the Senate by its right. leadership, and she is going to stand up as a populist against Wall Street. She is going to frame Hillary as the Democratic candidate of Wall wait, Street. So, wait, so are you saying that she's running? She's, I think she's, she's running. This? I think wow. she's running. Uh, that's, uh, that's great. I mean, I think the more the merrier, really, on that side. I think that's that would be a good thing. You know, my I long shot – my, my, uh, uh, my long shot choice for that, the other side, is Governor of Colorado John Hickenlooper. And I am not even kidding. Well, no, you know, Hickenlooper's an interesting. Yeah, he looks, interesting he's a pro energy Democrat. He won. He's got his, you know, he's, he's fairly popular in Colorado, though it was a little tougher reelect than he expected. Um, but he's a guy, too. Like, there's a huge um, gender gap in the Democratic Party right now. The m- dudes just aren't voting for him. And uh, a dude from the West, I bet you he's on the ticket. No, by the way, he did better. He 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 had a, he had a tough reelection, but he did better than anybody anticipated. Yeah. And he and, and but he had, he had to run was, hard though. I mean, it was right. harder than he expected. But but uh, you know, and, he, and he's uh, he's so for the lefties will like him because he's anti-gun, and um, the you know the sort of center-ish part of the Democratic Party, if there is any, um, uh, will like him because he's pro-energy. Uh, right, and that's a you know I don't Hickenlooper <laughs> sixteen. But anyway, but if if you are Elizabeth Warren, the real question you have to ask yourself is why why wouldn't you run? She's sixty four uh, or sixty five, so you know this is her only chance really to 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 really Wait. make a play for it. Well, how old is Hillary Clinton? No, Hillary Clinton's going to be sixty eight or sixty nine. So yeah, so so she really has. You know, a moment and she has this uh, hungry cr- crowd on the left of the party that wants her to do this. And I don't see the downside. What's the downside to her? I mean, unless she doesn't really doesn't like running for office, which is possible. But right. um, I don't think Unlikely. she would be taking a leader. She is taking leadership role in two populist efforts right now. This thing with the, remember, with the, with the also, omnibus bill. And then also no, is, right. But there's also nobody there doing anything, right? So the, the, the Senate Democrats are now kind of lead, I mean, they have a leader, but they are leaderless. So there's no, there's no, she's free. The, the, the benefit of being a minority is that you can be the Ted Cruz of the Democratic Party if you want. And, you know, it's all, it's open season. You don't have to, there's no leader, there's no power, there are no gifts to be given. You know, it's a, uh, it's uh, it's guerrilla warfare. So I, look, I, I, I bet you there'd be more, more of the senators will be doing that soon. Right. And she is also, wait, wait, John, also, what were you saying? All I was going to say is I, I, I think John's probably right that she's running, and I hope she does. And I think it is going to be it would be disastrous for Hillary Clinton, primarily because it would sort of short circuit the whole ready for Hillary thing being an argument that a woman has to have it, and that you know if, if another woman runs, this whole argument that they've been trying to set up that 
opposition to Hillary is anti-woman goes out the window. But um, there is another scenario, which is that, you know, she is sitting in the old Ted Kennedy seat and she may be setting herself up to be the Ted Kennedy of the Senate and to move the party leftward and to hold down that space and put pressure on Hillary to come meet her halfway, pulling her to the left without running. Um, I'm not saying that's what she's doing, but very, it doesn't, it doesn't very have plausible. to be that she's running. Very plausible. But she is doing another very interesting thing. She has come out explicitly against the nomination of a of a of a Wall Street guy named Antonio Weiss uh, for a job at Treasury. That is an Obama nomination. She is leading right. the Senate opposition to this guy Weiss's nomination solely and exclusively on the grounds, solely, that he worked on Wall Street. That is he, – she doesn't say he's bad. She doesn't say he did anything evil. But he works at Lazard Frere and she doesn't like him and that's it. And so she is now – giving Republicans a moment of great temptation where they could just, you know, hand Obama this, you know, total defeat where they, they, they knock this guy down to help her. That's a, that's actually a pretty strong and potent thing to do to actually be the lead but, against a nominee. It's one thing. It's one thing if you're a Republican, it, you it, go against it and right. you pull some Democrats but, over and you make them pull it for her to lead this fight is a very striking act. It's it's a headline well, grabbing. Well, isn't that normal now at this point? I mean, uh, you have a lame duck president. You have a, a Senate uh, that is not that is now uh, firmly controlled by the other party. I mean, there's there's no upside. I mean, and, and we already know she's a populist, so it, there's no reason for her to carry water for anybody or even to sit quietly. Why why bother? It's it's wide open. It's a it's a shootout over there. Or, not at all. But or, she she announced her opposition to him. Um, you know, before before the election, so but she could have easily that she could have easily swallowed that later. She could have been yeah. sued. So, something could have happened. But it's, since it's open season, I mean, that's that's part of the fun. I mean, in terms right. of, since we're talking about other things and we're enjoying watching, kind of a little little Christmas uh, you know pageant we're enjoying. Um, that's one of them. That's one of those things is the kind of disarray in in that formally fairly disciplined Senate Democrat Senate Democratic caucus. Right, and the it's Republican kind of caucus, because you know there was there. Nancy Pelosi said she did not want House Democrats to vote for this bill; that it was blackmail. She was going to oppose <laughs> yeah. it, and Obama went behind her back and cut her knees off because he doesn't want the government to shut down, and he knows that he suffered. That the the the, the general yeah. line is that Republicans suffered from the last they hurt shutdown, themselves. which yeah. is true. They did, and this whole line that they didn't is ridiculous. But wait, so wait, did how, how did they? How did they? Oh, they suffered. They, they by the way, they suffered. One wow. of the interesting things I would make the counter argument that the shutdown was incredibly helpful because it it reminded people that what they that they needed, uh, you know, coherent, good. Uh, sane candidates for the Senate in 2014. Oh, so and because the sh- shutdown was such a mess that it forced the Republicans to get their act in gear. I think so. I, I, that, that's my that's my take on. It. I mean, they, what didn't hurt them forever, and obviously it happened in you know in October of 2013 and 2014 was yeah, years for them. But a year later, it was Senate President yeah. Mitch McConnell. Right and more and and seats anyway, in, seats but, in the house. But but there is there is there is Pelosi having had her having had Obama kneecap her because he needed this thing to pass because he wants right uh, to go golfing next week and he doesn't need to have a giant you know <laughs> he needs all this controversy on his hands. Oh yeah, 
And, um, and just to be an incredibly pedantic nitpicker, McConnell's not the Senate president. Yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. Yes. You're right. I don't even know who. I don't even know who that the is not president. The president. Well, this president of the Senate is uh, is is Biden, it's, but it's the Joe president. Biden. Who is the president, president pro tempore? That's why they who keep the all those crayons by that seat. That's right. Did you see? Hey, Jonah, did you see that meme? Of the sad Joe Biden looking out the w- looking out the window. Oh, I contributed like thirty of them. I mean, yeah, like, I know. So, what was your favorite one? Um, well, the one that the one of mine that got retweeted the most was they said there'd be cake. <laughs> um, but uh, um, I don't know. I mean, there were a lot my, of really good I, ones. Here was yeah. my favorite one. My favorite one was: Does anybody really know what time it is? Does anybody really care? <laughs> <laughs> that, one just, that one just made you laugh really hard. Oh boy! All right, so now let's let's actually go to a specific topic or two. So I would say um, that uh, the most important media story of the last year, easily of the last year, is this meltdown of the Rolling Stone article about the gang rape at the University of Virginia that either really, really, really didn't happen or happened in some fashion that, uh, that, the, that the person who was uh, subjected to it uh, was required to create right. uh, varying uh, narratives of, uh, of, of, of different hey, implausibilities. Jo- Jonah, you, you wrote about this on the, yes. in the LA Times, and then you got yelled at in yes. print. Did you get an apology yet? No apologies. I don't see them coming anytime soon. Um, uh, you know, it, it was, it was so strange, right? Cause like, so I, I, I was the Richard Bradley, uh, editor of worth magazine was the first one to call questions about it. Um, I waited a week after, after I read it because I, I thought it was BS from the second I read the thing. Um, but why my position why was, think it was why? my position was that it's simply not true. His position was a little safer in that it was the journalistic techniques used uh, should call, give us skepticism. And um, I don't think it was true. I mean, I, I, at this point, it kind of doesn't matter because it's so obviously not true. But the things that set me off were, first of all, um, this wasn't a story about a date rape. You know, this wasn't a story about some drunken right. lummox right. pig, you know, forcing himself. Into this was a pre-planned, soberly coordinated, brutal gang rape and commission of a class one felony. Um, that, you know, and then when this girl, the thing that really set it off for me was that the, the dialogue of her friends struck yeah. me as so implausible. No, that's what hit me. That's what hit me. The, the, and, but so anyway, the, 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 I mean, I, I could go through all of it again and again, but you know, at this point, I mean, John's largely right that it, 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 if it, if, if, if something happened to this Jackie girl, it, it bears no resemblance to what actually appeared in Rolling Stone. It's sort of like, you know, um, it's like that old Harry Anderson routine about George Washington's axe. You know, 10 years ago, the handle broke and I had to replace it. And then just last week, the, the blade broke. So I had to replace that. But in essence, it's George Washington's axe. Right. You know, in, in <laughs> essence, something happened to Jackie. It's just none of the facts or reality portrayed in the Rolling Stone article convey it because it was all made up and we don't know how much of it was was made up by the author how much of it was the author letting these people make it up for her without her checking anything but it was it was it was fraudulent and the thing the only thing that really drove me crazy and really ticked me off and caused me to write a 3000 
super rapey G file last week <laughs> was that um, the uh, my position is that if you commit rape, you should rot in prison for a really really long time. And in fact, in principle, I don't have a problem with some truly heinous rapes uh, being punishable by capital punishment. But and so my position was we should out the rapists, we should get their names, we should put them on trial, and we should put them in jail if this happened. Right. That that got me labeled by all sorts of people on Twitter and by on and these idiot idiotic feminist sites got me labeled as pro rape or a rape apologist. Meanwhile, the people who said no, you just have to believe Jackie and respect her wishes. The their the consequences of their position was let's let all of the rapists stay at large and continue to rape people in perpetuity. Right. And that is the anti-rape position. You're through the looking glass if that's your position, right? And yet um, – and, and, and no one seemed to really sort of appreciate the fact that the that the people who were supporting um, the author and, and Jackie and the Rolling Stone stuff were objectively aiding and abetting a criminal conspiracy to commit rape. Right, except right. of course right. that they probably never really even believed it themselves and this – is the key to why this is so important. Everybody in journalism, and particularly liberals in journalism, want to focus on the crimes of Rolling Stone. And they want to say, well, they didn't do this, and they didn't do the reporting, and all this, but it's not Jackie's fault. Because Jackie was used by Sabrina Erdely in some fashion, and it's not her fault, and it's really a failure of a reporter. But that is, of course, ridiculous because what is going on here is that that piece was published, written and published to illustrate a point about a theory. The theory being that there is a an epidemic of rape on college campuses and this is all an effort to define rape down, uh, to make rape any form of sexual activity that a woman after the fact decides – is something that she did not wish to participate in. And there is an entire network of uh, counselors. <laughs> which, in other words, covers – which covers 80 percent of all women, by the way. Okay, but, you know, it's uh, counselors, uh, centers, um, you know, hundreds of employees, thousands of employees maybe across college campuses across the country whose living now depends on the notion – uh, that women are in need of, 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 of desperate counseling over the course of their college careers because they are subjected to sex crimes against them. And as this is going on, we are, you know, this, this is a truth that is so completely, you can, you know that it is not true. You know that the United States is not awash in yeah. rape. We have we have had a crime drop over the last 20 years in which the number of rapes that have been reported and convicted has fallen by half, which is completely consistent with all violent crime, which has fallen by half. And we have just yesterday, the Bureau of Justice Statistics came out with a report that said that the number of women who may be raped on college campuses over the course of four years is six in 1,000. And that number includes the 80 percent estimated 80% of women who do not report the crime that has been committed against them. So think about that. Eight out of 10 of the six out of a thousand have not actually reported the crime. So given that that eight out of 10 number is itself fraudulent, 
because it's not believable that somebody for whom a to whom a violent crime has been done would simply, you know, it's just too hard to report the crime because, you know, America is so mean to rape victims these days. Not only don't we have a rape crisis on campus, we have no rape crisis on campus, and yet there is an industry dedicated <laughs> to the notion that any right. sexual activity between a man and a woman can at any given point turn into a forced encounter that a woman does not want at her choosing, whether it is before it, during it, after it, six months after it, a year after it. And also, so this story blasts this to smithereens and is a key – is a serious cultural moment because, you know, yeah. you look at this over the last yeah. couple of I mean, years and you might, might say – I don't want my son ever to go to college. It's too hey, dangerous for him to go to college. That, that would actually be good. It's also too expensive. <laughs> hey, Jonah, what were you going to say? Yeah, so I like uh, I, I've sort of had a front row seat to a lot of this because my wife um, wrote the only serious book critical of Title IX um, yeah. ever written, and it was really fascinating to watch how the and she concentrated mostly on the sports stuff because that's where this began um, and. And early on in the history of the Title IX stuff, the feminists were very open that they were going to use Title Title IX of the Civil Rights Act, um, which for, forbids discrimination against women in higher education. They were going to use that as the wedge to do all sorts of stuff that they couldn't get done because the ERA failed. And um, if you went to if – you, if you, and it's a watching my wife take on this incredibly powerful establishment when she came out with that book um, – it was amazing, and, and we've all seen this in other areas like the Southern Poverty Law Center, right? But what happens is you have these deeply, deeply invested activist out, uh, outfits that claim to be think tanks or research institutes. And in this case, it was the Women's Sports Foundation, which is fully and wholly bought into one side of the feminist argument. And the press would routinely go to the Women's Sports Foundation to fact check my wife's claims as if the, as if they were a neutral arbiter. And uh, we've seen the exact same thing with all of this rape stuff where it's been amazing to me. I listen to a lot of NPR. So the Rolling Stone story, which was the first taken as gospel when it's disproved um, uh, NPR keeps going to the very same activists they went to when they thought the story was true to say, how are you right. coping with this? Are you worried that this is going to undermine your message? And they give him another five minutes on national radio to make the case that, you know, even though this story wasn't true. This story, um, the elements of this story may be unclear. Right. What they right. Or there, right. there may be problems with the story. And so the, the, the thing is, is that I, mean, I think John's absolutely right. But the industry is basically the Title IX industry. And what they are trying to do, and there was no accident that Obama and Biden came out quoting that one in five bogus statistic, which we didn't need this DOJ study to disprove. It was obviously untrue a week ago. It helps to have the DOJ study. Um, but they came out saying it as part of their larger effort to push a federal government takeover and re-regulation of college campuses generally along lines of Title IX. It empowers all sorts of lawyers, all sorts of activists, all sorts of, uh, of sort of uh, higher education bureaucrats to do exactly what they want to do. I mean, it's funny. This idiotic president of the University of Virginia, despite the fact that the story has been disproven, is still maintaining her base, her ban on fraternities. She's still say, acting as if 
all of her proposals are based upon the assumption that the Rolling Stones story was true. It doesn't matter. This side is the other side is still yeah. winning, even though what was supposed to be their silver bullet turned out to be a dud. But what's so strange about it? I mean, what's so strange about the story when I read it or heard it the first time was just how bad the writing was, how how horrible her friends were. We can't go report this. Think about your reputation. There's all this weird <laughs> dialogue that you think, good Lord, how old was the person who wrote, you know, who made this story up? Like, have you ever met an actual young person? Mostly they're, you know, I mean, look, I don't think kids should be going to college anyway because it's, it's, just, it's just filled with nonsense. But that one thing they are, they are definitely capable of is, is seeing themselves as a victim. That's you know part of the, what you learn at school. So the idea that any of her friends—I mean, I don't know who she was hanging out with—would say, uh, "But your reputation is the most important thing. People all over <laughs> campus will be calling you a whore or whatever it is." It just felt like a no, no. Like a, a your 1950s... You won't be invited to frat parties. That <laughs> That's a, right. That no, was no, the worst. It was just part. so weird. No, no. The, the like, best. The best line was, "Come on, Jackie. These were seven hot guys." Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. No one says I mean, that right. because no but, one wants to go to hell. But I want to make exactly two. Right. Can right. I make but two? It, even, felt, it yeah. felt a little like a North Korean play, you know, where <laughs> they write for Americans. We will crush them they, you know, with our capitalistic uh, indifference, and our, it, it's ridiculous. It was you pure know, propaganda. But there are two even larger and more basic points to be made. One of which is that there seems to be an argument abroad that, um. People don't lie about rape. What is the thing in life? What is the thing in life that people lie the most about? Sex, right? Do people lie about sex? Do people lie about having sex, having had sex, who they had <laughs> sex with, when they had sex? Yeah. I'm not now I know that rape is not a not rape okay. is not a it's a it's yeah. an act of violence, not uh-huh. not an act of sex. But people say things all the time. We went through Half a century of black people in the South falsely accused of raping white women who were, who were, you know, uh, engaged in uh, sexual affairs with them because the women were trying to, you know, save themselves from the wrath of their husbands and the Scottsboro boys getting lynched and, you know, I mean – Dozens, well, birth, if not of thousands, of cases of this. The birth, birth of a nation. Uh, 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 Nineteen twenty, fifteen. Um, it it that that was the story of birth of the nation, right? That was the story of the the the, the reason the Klan uh, was reunited. The Scottsboro boys, yeah, right, I mean, right. So so that's number one. So in fact, we all learned there was some point at which you know, if you were a civil rights activist, you understood that. That you know the accu- false accusation of rape was a very you know was a life and death thing, and that it had to be taken seriously. And even larger in terms of the history of law and elementary fairness is the notion that you cannot accuse someone anonymously of a crime. You have to be the person who announces it, and you have to have witnesses because somebody has to. There has to be proof that the crime was committed. That is like right. the elementary basis right. of law. Period. Even in Salem, even in the Salem witch trials, you had to have two witnesses. No, but I mean, it's 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 Jewish law. Yeah, I mean, it's the law as laid out in the Torah. You know, the original, you know, the original code of God. You have to have. You are not allowed to accuse people anonymously. You have to be. You have to make a public accusation so that your name is known, and you cannot. 
you know, you, you, there has to be independent right. evidence. Okay, since we're now talking about rape, and we should probably just put a – like it's so, so distasteful. But let's talk about three more minutes um, and then talk about something funny. Um, Lena Dunham uh, in her book um, – I forget what it's called. Not she another book. girl? Not another – Something like that. Yeah. She, uh, she tells the story of what was a sexual assault in, in college at Oberlin of all places. Um, which means she, I don't know how she found a guy at Oberlin, um, but okay, whatever. Um, so at Oberlin and, um, and she writes and she identifies this guy. She tells everybody his name is Barry and he was a prominent, of course, campus conservative, which at Oberlin must, I mean, that poor guy, I, you know, you want to want to you know, knit him a sweater or something. Um, there was in fact a guy named Barry who was a prominent campus conservative, um, at the same time that he was there and, um, she was there and, this guy now is legitimately angry. He said, you, you, I, you, you, I need you to say it is not me. And it was – and he, apparently he sent letters and letters and letters to the publisher, to her, her, her literary agent and to her demanding that she, that she make it clear that, that they had never met. Um, and they finally uh, – the, the, it was only until he like – I think got a Kickstarter or an Indiegogo or something to, to raise money for um, a, a lawsuit that uh, the publisher responded. Because isn't it – I mean isn't the point – Especially the point in Rolling Stone and also in the Lena Dunham book, which is called "Not That Kind of Girl," um, isn't it a po- the point that it's really it doesn't really matter who the other actors were? It's a it's a it's just a star turn for whoever you want to create, and so in a way, you, you never bother to think about it when you're when you're the Rolling Stone reporter that this guys this doesn't this dialogue sounds really bad. People don't talk that way, right. and you never bother to think about that when you're you're, you're slapping the, t- the keys away, as Lena Dunham was. Uh, and, oh, a guy named Barry. He was a campus conservative. He was a real jerk. He, he, I'll make him the rapist. You, at no point do you ever do you ever stop because it really isn't about that. It isn't. But it's about- not just. It's not just that. It's also if you invent a character, you say that it is somebody who it is not. There is very good reason to think that that story is made up of a whole cloth, just like there's reason to believe that Jackie's right. story was made up of a whole cloth. Lena Dunham decided she was writing this memoir. She wanted to claim that she was raped. Lena Dunham didn't go to the cops. Why not? Who the hell is Lena Dunham not to go to the cops? She's a, you know, she's a rich girl from New York at, this incredibly, pro- yeah. at this incredibly progressive school. She can't call the Oberlin local police and say this guy raped me, arrest him, and we'll send him to jail for the rest of his life. It's ridiculous. Well, what does also, she have to fear? She also, doesn't have anything to fear. I don't believe the story. There, there's, a, there's this ideological assumption that, first of all, if you get more than two dudes together, two white dudes together – that we just start planning rapes, right? I mean, that's just what we do. I mean, in fact, I'm amazed that this podcast hasn't turned into a rape yet. Um, it's it, well, two white dudes together, either planning rapes or uh, talking about Star Trek. Yeah, right. Well, that, well, we've proven that one. And so, and then the second, the the second thing is, and look, I am I am totally open. I mean, it, that's the problem with talking about this is that I think Rob's right. It does make you feel like you are minimizing or belittling something that is. Obviously, a terrible, horrible crime, and um, but at the same time, there is this idea that being a rape victim carries an enormous social stigma, and I'm not sure that how true that is. Um, I'm sure it's true in some cases. I'm sure that there are many women who se- sincerely fear the social stigma that comes with it. In some of communities, course. there probably really is one. But you know what else comes with a really big social stigma? Being called a rapist. 
as a matter of policy, I discriminate against rapists. I will not hire them. I will not socialize with them. You know, I mean, I, I am, I am like, I am, I am almost, it's not even an irrational, irrational bigotry. It's just straight up bigotry. I hate rapists. Rapists have a hard time finding jobs and they should. The, the social stigma against rapists is so strong in this country that when we can confirm their identity, we send them to jail. And so like the idea that somehow, because I, I, I'm sorry, I'm getting worked up, but I've had so many arguments in the last week about this. Where women are telling me that you don't understand the, the the stigma against being a rape victim, it matters so much more than the stigma. You know, than the stigma. You have this idiotic woman right in the Washington Post that we should get rid of the presumption of innocence, that we should believe all rape victims and all accusations of rape, no matter what. And the idea that somehow the stigma of being publicly named a rapist is somehow not get as right. damaging but, but, okay, as... but it but it isn't okay it isn't and I, here's here's where i find this so bizarre the same people who are com- claiming god this is the rape show isn't it uh you should have sympathy for lena dunham you should have sympathy for or or, or believe lena dunham believe the uh um jackie at uva uh believe the women uh, who um who are coming out now uh, uh and telling stories about bill cosby are, are saying the opposite about President Bill Clinton. Always they were, the opposite. That's they right. Were, they were as many – or not as many, but they were two extremely credible reports, affidavits of his behavior in, in, the, in state office in Arkansas and in the White House that qualify as sexual assault. Yep. I'm done. That's what I want to say. That. So, what, what I find so bananas is that at no point Rob, you know this: women never make this stuff up unless it's about Bill Clinton. I mean, exactly. that's, that's and then they make it all up, right? Right. It's, it's but, to me that's staggering. Or if you walk if you walk into a police station and you say, you know, I I was mugged, uh, my wallet was stolen, and I've lost a th- you know a thousand dollars. And then the policeman says, uh, good, okay, well, let's go, you know, what did the guy look like? And you say, I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> so the cop would say, I always think he looks like John go, Bedoritz. Go, yeah. go away. Go away. Like that's not the way this works. If you're going to come and you're going to say that a crime was committed. You have to tell me who committed the crime. You have to show me the evidence that the crime was committed. And then I will throw the book. I will do whatever I can to make sure that whoever did right. this is punished for it. But also, without, if you go, without that if, predicate, the entire thing falls into into a state of surrealism. But if you go to your friends and you say, "I was mugged," uh, they took my wallet and my cell phone. Your friends say, "Oh my God, how horrible! What can we do?" Your they friends don't say, "I can't tell anyone. We can't tell anyone and ruin your reputation. <laughs> <laughs> You're no longer a good girl." Um, All right. Well, having 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 gone through this now, um, it's now time to talk about something else involved. Yes, uh, this is the rapiest podcast ever. I don't. Yeah, involving uh, testosterone, which I'm sure will be you know very happy uh, news for our sponsor, Harry Shave Spot, because of course Harry Shave Spot, less than a year old, is a creative disruptor, disrupting the shaving industry. Offering a better shaving experience at better value than giants like Schick and Gillette. The company makes amazing German engineered blades and they care so much about the quality of the shave 
that they just purchased the 93-year-old factory that makes them. So just here's why you should order your next shaving kit from Harry's. First, it's focused on providing men a great shaving experience for a fraction of the price, half the price of other razor blades. It's a beautiful, clean product design, simple, better, high-quality blades engineered in their own factory in Germany for sharpness and strength, convenience and ease of ordering online, shipped to your door, great-looking, great-feeling, great-shave, good price, Go to harrys.com. Use the promo code GLOPHOLIDAY to save $5 off your first purchase. And as always, our deep thanks to Harry's Shave for sponsoring the Glop podcast. So, And can we say, and, if you are listening to this podcast, <laughs> you made it through 30 minutes of rape. Um, if you listen to the podcast and you are a member of Ricochet, we thank you. We are honored to have you be a member with us. If you are listening to this podcast and you are not a member of Ricochet, you know we do a bunch of other podcasts. We do some great – this week we had a great one with uh, Richard Epstein and John Yu talking about uh, the, uh, a little bit about the torture uh, report. Uh, it's really, really interesting stuff. More podcasts, more conversation, a bunch of little goodies you get. Um, I know this podcast is free, but uh, uh, but it ain't. It doesn't, it's not that it costs zero. So please uh, um, go over to ricochet.com and become a member today. There. Now, of course, our other big favorite story of the last couple of weeks <coughs> is the implosion. <coughs> sorry. I'm sorry. Is the implosion at the New Republic, the um, uh, venerable 100-year um, weekly that is now becoming a uh, 10 times a year uh, magazine and uh, website two years after its purchase – by Chris Hughes, the world's luckiest roommate, uh, the guy who made $700 million on Facebook largely because he, uh, he was assigned Mark Zuckerberg's uh, suite at, at Harvard uh, when he was uh, 18 years old. And um, this uh, – the event in which um, he uh, dismissed Franklin Foer, uh, its editor, and Leon Weaseltier, its literary editor – then led to a an en masse uh, walkout of the magazine staff and the resignation of an enormous number of people on on the magazine's masthead, which, uh, to my absolute astound- astonishment, uh, the number of people on the New Republic's masthead is 87, or was Jeez. 87. Yeah. Um, they had a dance editor. Uh, they certainly had a dance editor. Uh, the, <laughs> we had a and, dance uh, editor. <laughs> uh, now... There are a lot of people on mastheads who are called contributing editors who are – it's an honorific hey. and they're not paid. Excuse me. Hey, slow down. I'm sorry. But, <laughs> um, some of us. But yeah. 87. So I think 59 or 69 of the 87 or something like that resigned um, because uh, – About 20 of them Frank were probably went, dead, right? I mean, yeah. yeah, I think that's right. They cleared yeah. out some, yeah. That's right. Um, but so here's the comedy of all of this. So wait, uh, what you just said was funny. This is funnier yeah. still. Okay, well, this is this is what's funnier still. So the staff uh, walks out on the publication. Some some of the people who work there are are, are uh, or at least one <laughs> is a friend of mine. Um, so uh, you know, I understand it's a, always a difficult situation. There's you know upheaval at a at a place of work, and uh, and clearly the firing of Franklin Four was handled badly, and all of this, but. Uh, the truth is that the New Republic is a, a lousy magazine. It's been lousy for years. It's been lousy under Franklin Foer. It's been lousy since Chris Hughes owned it. Um, it's far from clear 
that Chris Hughes and his and this guy Vidra, whom he hired to help him from Yahoo News, have any idea how to make it better. But the idea that something wonderful was destroyed, I hate that is 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 preposterous. Um, there was a time when the New Republic was a vivid, crazy, interesting, schizophrenic magazine that everybody who was interested in sort of politics and ideas read in part because it was so interesting and schizophrenic, but the writing was a very high quality. Uh, the argumentation was a very high quality. Now it's a lot of kids writing nonsense on the web and some other people writing, you know, sort of half-baked democratic hack nonsense in the magazine and it's really not very good. Um, and and so uh, – but Hughes is a silly person and this guy Vidra is a silly person and so it's a little bit like you don't know whom not to root for. And the the battle, I think. Well, is you know, a, here's what I hate. Fun. I hate all that the, the the preening and the and the pomposity of it, and the long letters about how venerable it is, and all that stuff. And I and I found myself the more I read the complaints, uh, the more I sided with Chris Hughes and Vidra, who you know, Chris Hughes bought it. It was for sale. He bought it. He can do whatever he wants with it. And and and, and the idea that oh, I cannot believe that Frank Foer found out by you. Know, Hey, I got a show canceled a month ago, and I found out by clicking on Deadline Hollywood. That's how I found out. <laughs> so, you know, cry me a river. I mean, good Lord. These are uh, – it, 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 it irritates me just how, how cosseted and cradled these, uh, you know, frankly, unimportant political writers are. No, but if you want to talk about preening – Slow I mean, down there, big the, guy. The most yeah. preening person in American intellectual life is Leon Wieseltier, the literary editor of the New Republic. He is the definition of preen, and he leaves, and then all these people are like, "Oh, good heavens, Leon's section! It's so wonderful, it's such deep thinking book review, long book reviews, serious." And where are we going to find such things? You know, we're going to find them. Find them in commentary. You can find them in National Review. No. You can find them in a lot of places. Oh, you took a find shot! In, wow, you, you find you, them you in New York. Promotional thing. No, but you can find them in the New York Review of Books. You can find them in a lot of better places than 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 the New Republic. So he's a big showy preeny guy, and so he creates this you know uh, notion that he is the last public intellectual. Well, that is ridiculous. And of course, Chris Hughes has the right to do whatever he wants with the magazine, and they did him a big favor because they he cleared, they cleared the decks. Exactly he can right. Hire an exactly entirely right. new staff. He doesn't have to pay severance. So congratulations to all of them because if they'd stayed around, maybe he would have fired them <laughs> yeah, and then right. they would have gotten severance. So they walk yeah. and they get nothing except, so, except some very supportive tweets and they should they should only live to enjoy that. Yeah. So I, I've known Frank Bowler for 20 years. I like him. I'm friendly with him. I agree for the most part with John. It has not been a good magazine for a very long time. And I love The New Republic. I grew up reading The New Republic. Um, it makes me sad – um, whenever one of these magazines crashes and burns, because there just aren't a lot left, and I'm, you know, I'm a conservative. I'm nostalgic for an era of great political magazines. And John's right; you can still find good stuff in other places, but the number of places that you can find good stuff is going away. Yeah, is the, and the New Republic was shrinking away from its standing as a place that published a lot of good stuff for a long time, as you said. So that's part of the story. It's like I love, you know, I'm sure. I loved vaudeville, you know, but if the vaudeville theater near me closed and I hadn't been there in 10 years because everything there was lousy, I'm not going to be all that upset. Yeah, no, I I hear what you're saying, but there was, I mean, look, the New Republic was once run by Stalinists 
at least yep. when it, it existed, there was hope that it could be good again. Magazines have right. good periods and bad periods. Absolutely. And, um, but 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 there is a comedy here. All a lot of times, magazines go through these changes, and it is a classic thing where the snap the staff is sort of driven into a snit and some series of mass resignations. My mother, who was an editor at Harper's in 1971, the editor of Harper's got into a stupid fight with the publisher, a guy named Cowles, um, and uh, basically quit in a snit and then basically forced everybody who was his friend, including my mother and staffer, to resign on the grounds that, you know, the magazine's integrity was compromised. It was terrible. This is awful. They should all walk out with him. And my mother, who loved that job, she quit. She was very unhappy to quit. She quit. One person stayed at Harper's. His name was Lewis Lapham. And he <laughs> remained editor with a brief pause in, you know, once in 1975 and once from 80 to 82. He remained editor of the magazine for 40 years. So who won there? Everybody who had to walk out to satisfy Willie Morris's vanity or Lewis Lapham. Similarly, the New, the, the New Yorker, uh, um, who bought it? Cy uh, uh, Newhouse bought it. Uh, Condé Nast bought it and uh, fired Robert Gottlieb and installed Tina Brown. And there was another. Oh, Tina Brown. She's so she's so light right. and fluffy right. and terrible. How dare this happen? This is a public trust and 20 people resign and da-da-da. And Tina Brown took that magazine, and I'm, I, I have many problems with Tina Brown, but she infused it with life. I agree. And it was the, great when she had And it. The New Republic was a magazine, was a live, lively, vibrant, crazy magazine for 20 years, and then it killed itself. And then it just died. It's been dead for a decade. And, you know, if Chris Hughes looked at it and said, you know, I'm not getting out of this what I want from the $10 million that I pumped into it over the last two years, he is totally right. He may not know what well, it is got, he could get. Uh, yeah, yeah so, I think, I, but here, here's where I think we can all agree, and I think Rob was sort of hinting <laughs> at this, right? The, 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 the problem is, is that everybody comes through in this. If you, can, if you can take off your nostalgia and if you can take off your sort of sympathies and all the rest and you look at it, the way a normal human being would, everyone comes across in this as a preening weenie, right? And, yes. you know, you, you, you say, oh, look at how cosseted and self-absorbed these guys are. And, you know, Chris Hughes is right. He doesn't have to subsidize this piece of crap and blah, 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 blah. And then you go over and you read what Chris Hughes is about and what he did and all the money he sunk into the interior decorating and all his nonsense about a vertically integrated what's now. I, I love that. A vertically integrated di- digital media company. A disruptive yeah. digital media vertical, vertically integrated, curated and uh, sustainable. Right. You know, yeah. it's, 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 like a, it's like a cliche Mad Libs generator. <laughs> it's fantastic. Right? Yeah. And, yeah. And so then you're like – I can't sympathize with these people, and pretty soon you're in the Schadenfreude equivalent of the Iran-Iraq War. That's you know, what I was just, just saying. It's yeah. just fun not to root for anybody. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree with that. Or, or, or just for, to, to root for it to continue. I do want to get in one shot as a matter of yeah. personal privilege about Leon Weaseltier, who I know is not a fan of mine, and that's fine. Um, um, and I don't even care that the review of my first book in New Republic was an intellectually flaccid piece of crap. Um that's what they what said drove, about it. Uh, no, that's no, what the review. The review. Oh, the review. Right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the um, when when Bill Buckley stepped down at National Review, 
Leon Wilteter gave some snide, high-handed quote to the New York Times saying something along the lines that, you know, that Bill's prose style was affected and pretentious or something to that effect. And of all of the people in the universe (laughs) who are not allowed to hurl that kind of criticism of another writer, Leon Wieseltier is in a class by himself. I mean, it is... It, it is it is like Carrot Top criticizing someone's lowbrow humor. It is just not – it's not – you can't I don't like do the it. Prop, I don't like the prop humor, said uh, comedian Said Carrot Gallagher. Top. Said yeah. Gallagher. Um, anyway, that's a fantastic analogy. So so let's go to two more. Let's go into the world of show business. And, of course, the big news this week in show business is uh, that it appears the North Koreans or somebody stole the entirety of, uh, so, of, uh, of, of Sony uh, Corporation's – um, database and computer work and metadata and everything like that and put it out on the internet, including everybody's salaries and social security numbers and all of this. But, um, you know, in, a, in an act of, um, of what might be considered entirely impermissible uh, exploration of people's private data that was released illegally, everybody is, of course, <laughs> re- right. you know, rifling through the emails to find oh, these I'm, hilarious I'm examples yeah. of Hollywood. They are of fantastic. Hollywood duplicity, meanness, and horror. The thing about Hollywood is that – and I think all business in general and probably all of sort of social interaction was that you you used to be able to lie. And lying – and lying is incredibly efficient. It gets things done, you know, in Hollywood especially. I remember hearing the story of a guy whose dad was a famous television producer in the 70s. And in the 70s, he had first look deals. Meaning uh, you, you sign a deal with a network that, uh, and they pay you a lot of money and they get a first look at everything you're doing. They get a look at it first. And he had a first look deal with every network at the same time. <laughs> and the reason he could do that is because you can lie to people to their face and then you lie to somebody. I mean no, nobody – no one's – they're all not always in the room together, right? No one's ever in the room. But email and all this stuff means that everyone is essentially in the room at the same time because all of those things can be forwarded and reproduced and and people say stuff when they're in the car and they 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 pound out a quick email hit send and 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 all of this truth telling which now has to happen is um is astonishing i mean it's astonishing for especially in hollywood i mean here here's what's interesting about the story it started that the that the hackers got um uh, a digital copy of their upcoming release annie which they have a lot of high hopes for for christmas and then two other dramas that are coming out. And what, what, <clears throat> for the first week, the story was, oh, my God, what's that going to do to revenues, right? If, this, if the movies are available for free on a torrent site before even the release, that's terrible. But in fact, all these studios already build that in. They already have a number they believe – You know, it's like uh, department stores. They know what their shortages are going to be. They know how much – they know some people are going to come in and steal. And it's built into their projections, which is what Sony did. <clears throat> and then it was, so it was a week later, we found out that not – then it was salaries. OK, so the salaries come out. So it turns out the chairman of the TV uh, division is making 200 grand less than the chairman of the motion picture division. So that's probably not good. They're going to probably have to you know, top him off somehow. But then now it's all of this fantastic email correspondence between and among stars and directors. And <clears throat> it is wrong. It is morally wrong. To read it and to enjoy it, and I confess that I am doing both of those things. Okay, but it is well, morally wrong. It is morally wrong. 
Can I just share with you the most morally wrong uh, latest? Uh, it's very wrong what I'm about to do, but I, I can't help myself. That uh, One of the things that was discovered this morning by BuzzFeed uh, was that, um, and I will read it to you, New York Times columnist Maureen Dowd promised to show Sony Pictures co-chair Amy Pascal's husband, Bernie Weinraub, a former Times reporter, a version of a column featuring Pascal before publication. The end result was a column that painted Pascal in such good light that she engaged in a round of mutual adulation with Dowd over its email after publication. It also scored Pascal points back at the studio, with Sony's then communications chief calling the column impressive. The exchanges were uncovered in a trove of Pascal's emails released as part of a massive hack on Sony. The column, published after the Academy Awards earlier this year, lamented how Oscar voters are still overwhelmingly white, blah, 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 except, of course... For the wonderful Amy Pascal, the wife of her friend and former colleague, Bernie Weinraub. So I just wanted to share with you the fact that, uh, that Maureen Dowd of the New York Times uh, gave, basically gave Amy Pascal first pass over a column in the New York Times. Right, right. So it's really bad that I uh, just uh, read that and it's, I'm sorry. I apologize for having done this. But I just couldn't help myself because it's so fantastic. It is great. It's so great and it's wrong. It is morally wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. And, now, and Variety the other today, great part. The editor of Variety part. today, the editor of Variety actually, or yesterday, kind of addressed that issue. And, uh, you know, it was just, what, if a, what if a terrorist bomb had blown up uh, the Sony studios in Culver City? Uh, would I be? Would it be right for me to sift through the rubble looking for the hard drives, executive hard drives? Um, a lot of that. But then it came down to the last graph is great. We said, well, but you know, if we don't do it, someone's going to do it. So, by the way, Amy Pascal wants to read a Maureen Dowd column. You'll never guess what happens next. <laughs> and, and by the way, the most important thing is, of course, these exchanges between Amy Pascal and. The producer Scott Rudin and other people, in which they are, you know, exchanging, uh, you know, what, gee, I wonder what black movie Barack Obama would like. Maybe it's, I guess he'd like Twelve Years a Slave. You think he likes right. Django Unchained? No, I think he likes Ride Along with Kevin Hart. You know, it's like why don't? It's like you know, two steps above them suggesting that they should send him, you know, a bucket of fried chicken and a watermelon as a present. And these are, of course, like. You know, these are liberal doyens of, you know, right. of, of great standing well, of and, you know, people of upstanding. But the, but the apologies are great. I am uh, I'm deeply ashamed of my this – is, this was not me. And I do – in no way do I condone <laughs> – Amy Pascal said this was not, not me. me. It's like this is you. <laughs> Literally. That's this the is, point. This is you. Is you. Right. This is the real you. What you're saying right. is the fake you. This is this – is, yeah, this is like Gruber, right? I mean, yeah, it's pure yeah. Gruber. Hundreds of hours of video showing me saying exactly what I believe are all lies. It's not <laughs> me. Yeah. You know, in, the, in, in 1994, there was a guy named. That doesn't um, reflect my true feelings. Yeah. The there things was a guy that I named, said off the cuff, uh, casually, when someone asked me what my true feelings were. That <laughs> does not reflect my true feelings. There was a guy named Josh Steiner. He was working as the deputy number two guy or like head chief of staff, whatever. To uh, uh, Roger Altman, who was a, a senior official of Treasury uh, in the Clinton administration, and something happened or other, and he had his, he was subpoenaed, and you know there was something going on. I don't remember what the details were, but but his diary said some stuff, and so he yeah. he was forced to say under oath 
that he had lied to his diary. <laughs> well, you know, oh, I know. I remember that. He had, it was yeah. a writing exercise he was performing in his diary, and that it, what, what he had written in his diary I would was not, not true. It that way. No, but you know, the best part of yeah, that story that's what was people do it. Yes, was that, and I'm I, I, I'm pretty sure this is right. Um, I'm, I'm I'm about ninety percent, eighty five percent sure this is right. That during that whole scandal where Steiner was in trouble, um, he was a longtime family friends with. Uh, Anthony Lewis from the New York Times, I believe it was. Either Anthony Lewis or Frank Rich. I think it was Anthony Lewis. And he would call Anthony Lewis for advice and help and comfort. And Anthony Lewis would sing to him over the phone the Felix the Cat theme song. Oh, my God. That's right. You're exactly right. To buck him up. (laughs) Now, I have to say, in full disclosure, Josh is actually a very good friend of mine. Is he? Uh, Yeah. Uh, uh, he's a lovely person, just so you know. Um, it's just the, a name to me. Yeah, yeah, but the worst thing about it was, and and he, he it's now the pain is over. But the the diary itself was an actual diary, um, and it had all sorts of personal stuff in it, oh. including his uh, pet names for his girlfriend, and uh, so he had an incredibly excruciatingly humiliating uh, a meeting with his attorneys and the attorneys for I guess it was the Senate Banking Committee, um, where they agreed on things to redact, uh, and they were all horribly personal. Should we redact this part about your concern about the size of your ass? Yes, please redact that part. Oh Should we redact God. this part about was brutal? Oh. Um, and the, but the oh. good news is, is that uh, the in fact his the then girlfriend is, was his wife, and they have a lovely family, and they're you know they've they've recovered well from those humiliations. Uh, well, you know, I you know, look, he this is one of the things that happens when you lie to yeah. your diary. That's all I can say. <laughs> um, um, all right, so as as we reach the end, it's the end of the year, and as you know, I, I, I moonlight as a movie critic, and so I'm going to throw out to you guys my very peculiar uh, list of the top movies of the year and let you uh, let you react, um, I, uh, because we should uh, offer some sucker and uh, to, to our to our listeners. Um, uh, my pick for the number one movie of the year, which uh, not many people have yet seen, uh, is the uh, small, intense drama called Whiplash. Uh, about an 18-year-old drummer who is going to a school very much like Juilliard, New York, who becomes uh, the protege and the um, abusive uh, uh, recipient of abuse by a tyrannical conductor played by the astounding J.K. Simmons, who will almost certainly win an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for this. Whiplash, it is fantastic. And then, you know, I think the most enjoyable movie that I saw last year in terms of sheer simple pleasure and enjoyment was Guardians of the Galaxy, yeah, which I have now seen three times and which is an enchanting, wonderful, totally unexpected joy from beginning to end. Um, and, you know, I, I've been a critical of a lot of these Marvel things, which I think are, you know, overwrought and overdone. It's, and it's just amazing. Yeah. And then also great and also unexpectedly great. And I noticed even that my review of it was was more... Uh, half-hearted than I feel now, having seen it again, was the Lego movie. This very odd, you know, animated film um, made entirely with Lego about Lego characters um, set in this, you know, uh, universe in which this totally 
uh, uninteresting person becomes the savior of the world of, of Lego uh, against a sort of happy-go-lucky totalitarian dictatorship. <laughs> um, and it, uh, oddly enough, voiced by Chris Pratt, the star. The star, the star voice there is right. Chris Pratt, who was the star of Guardians of the Galaxy and is the breakout person of the year. And then, of course, the movie everybody really should see because it is a one-of-a-kind thing in film history is Boyhood, Richard Linklater's mm-hmm. movie about that, that follows the same cast of characters literally over the space of 12 years. And you see, as Ethan Hawke, the star of it, says, you see him taking this boy, Eller Coltrane, and putting him in a car seat uh, when he is right. six. And then you see him saying goodbye to him at college when he is 18. Nothing has ever been done like this before. It's beautiful and soulful. It's too long. I don't think it ends well, but it's a pretty amazing thing. Is that is that your list? That's and, the uh, list. And uh, and then a couple a couple of weird things. Snowpiercer, the craziest movie of the year. The train, the train driving uh, endlessly through uh, through the uh, a world of, of of ice and snow, in which the haves are in front and the have-nots are in back, planning a revolt, which is the most brilliantly directed movie of the year, which is pretty, pretty amazing and entertaining. And then on the extreme other end is a movie called Locke starring the British actor, Tom Hardy, who is the only person we see on screen for 90 minutes. And it is a movie about him driving from London to a hospital somewhere outside of London where a woman that he had a one night stand with is about to give birth to a baby and how he negotiates telling his wife that this happened, dealing with the fact that he's had to leave uh, his place of employ at a critical moment because he cannot bear the thought of not being with this woman, a sad woman that he had a sad encounter with, leaving her alone to go through this birth. It is the most beautiful performance. It is a stunning, it, it's, a, it's a tense, remarkable movie with one person in a car. So if Snowpiercer is lots of people on a train zooming through a futuristic landscape, Locke is its total opposite and it's equally as, as thrilling. So those are, those are some of my choices. Yeah, I don't know. You saw <laughs> Locke or you didn't I, see I, them? I didn't see any of those. <clears throat> I will see them. I think I get, I get screeners. That's what I get. But I, oh. I love Guardians of the Galaxy. That was terrific. Lego movies, terrific. I like, I like, the, I like the fun movies. Sorry. And by the way, another really fun movie that not all that many people saw but, is a comedy called The Other Woman right. with Cameron Diaz and, and, um, and Leslie Mann, uh, which is a total reversal on the classic plot of the, of the uh, man who has a, a, girl, you know, a wife and the girlfriend f- find out about each right. other. Hey, because so- in this movie, the wife is the, the, wi- the, wife is the ditz and the, and the other woman is the sober straight person and so, they – yeah. Well, let's get Jonah in here. Jonah, you, you, you have seen none of those movies or you've seen all of those I've movies? seen some of them. I saw, I'll tell you, I saw Locke um, on my iPad on a plane and I stopped watching halfway through. Uh, but it was also because I was looking for something else and it was just yeah. – it was sort of too intense to watch in the mood I was in on a plane. I'm not saying it was necessarily bad. It just was not what I expected it to be and I keep meaning to come back to it. Um, love the Lego movie. Love Guardians of the Galaxy. My problem is I, I end up seeing most of these movies a year later when they're on yeah, you know, my iPad and when I can see them on the road. Um, I thought Captain America Winter Soldier was better than I would have expected it to be. I thought the last X-Men movie was probably the best one they made. Um, 
But, you know, as you can tell, I see a lot of these movies because I have to see them with my daughter. Um, I'm liking the Planet of the Apes franchise. But uh, I have nothing of great substance to add to that list. I think it's a pretty good what list. What about TV? TV. Um, can I just say that Captain America Winter Soldier should have been called Noam Chomsky Man? That is the most left-wing movie that has ever been made. That is a movie in which... It is posited that the only way to save the world from the evil United States is Edward Snowden. That is actually the plot of Captain oh, America. I, I, I agree. I agree with you. The politics of it are really stupid, and the problem, and, and that's perfectly legitimate criticism. Um, although, but he's good. Although he's very good. Ti- although your proposed title, John, is the worst title I've ever heard. Noam Chomsky's America. <laughs> no, think. Noam Chomsky. Have man. you guys seen? Have you, have you guys seen Noam Chomsky? Man, it's great. <laughs> Zinnier than ever. Yeah, right, right. Noam Chomsky lad. It it undermines its own text as it's reading its own text. (laughs) Go ahead. What about TV, Jonah? All right, well, TV, I I don't have a great, like, sort of, these are the TV shows of 2014 thing. I mean, the thing we had talked about beforehand was things worth binge watching. Um, I think, think even though I hated the ending of True Detective, which was a 2014 show, um, it was still a great piece of television to watch and um you know i have we can debate the ending and all that but i think it was it was really kind of special um i thought this was the best season yet of game of thrones um absolutely this is is the best season yet of walking dead you know there's always been this the sub theme of walking dead that the real the truly most dangerous creature aren't the zombies it's other human beings and they finally figured out how to convey that this year um in a sort of compelling way um i don't know i mean other things are actual 2014 kind of things like uh the strain pretty weak um i wouldn't sort of foist that on people Uh, i thought i thought the season finale and the final season of sons of anarchy if you're a fan of sons of anarchy was fantastic um if you're not a fan of sons of anarchy it was very sons of anarchy ish (laughs) um Uh, but but isn't it weird though because you're you're saying um, uh, I think this is 2014 I mean I think I think in the future we're not going to say the best of 2014 we're going to probably think to ourselves the best I saw in 2014 right no it could have been movies you know the best best TV that I saw in 2014 for example was I watched I think four seasons of Justified which I had not seen before yeah. which is a oh, wonderful one of the best TV shows ever yeah it's great ever and it's a wonderful show and it's a particularly great show that you don't have to binge watch because except for the second season which really does have a through line you can kind of pick it up wherever yeah. and so it has that really great quality and and um and I really 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 uh enjoyed that and I um Fargo uh, and was I really also good. and, I and Fargo, was, Fargo good. was good. Yeah, Fargo's Fargo was good. Too. And uh, and then I also saw the British Sherlock with um, Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman, uh, which is I think oh, they only great. they've only made eight. Yeah, um, yeah they, and, I mean, and they're absolutely fit. It's a really genuinely inspired yeah. conceit that it's Sherlock Holmes in the present day. And, the, and what's and great about updated it is that, retellings of re, of the of the original stories. Yeah, but what's great about it is in, in the original uh, Sherlock Holmes was. Uh, the, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. John Watson uh, had just come back from war in Afghanistan. Yeah, and so and so he <laughs> and has, so, and so he yeah. has now. It's exactly, is the, the um, if you if you like that, I don't know if you've seen it, John, but um, Luther with Idris Elba. 
is a fantastic. I have not seen, yeah, but people love that. I know, particularly the first two seasons. The they come back to have him do more, and they, they don't really hold together as well uh, dramatically. But like the first, the first season, first two seasons were really just fantastic TV. Yeah, and the best, you know, and the movie I might have picked as the the thing I might have picked as the best movie of the year, aside from Whiplash, was actually this four hour HBO uh, version of the novel Olive Kittredge, which is about a which is about a a difficult woman living in a small town in Maine over the course of twenty five or thirty years, and what happens to her with Frances McDormand in what is easily the female performance of the year. And it's a very moving, touching, interesting, powerful piece of work and it's about four hours and you know 30 years ago it would have been a a prestige film Mm -hmm. bidding for oscars with meryl streep playing the lead role and it wasn't here and probably for the best so Hmm. um rob do you have a best of anything no i don't i don't i don't do that i just enjoy the products as they come and i enjoy them and i don't try to judge them i feel like the judging i don't do that i I should I, i try to enjoy life john uh, as it's that's, handed to me, and I just I'm just present in every moment. So uh-huh. I'm 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 just being really present when I'm in watching TV show, and I'm not trying to rank it because that's a very con- this, you everybody gets a trophy. Everyone everybody gets a trophy, gets a trophy. and, and a the helmet. Best, the yeah. best novel that I read this year is "We Are Not Ourselves" by Matthew Thomas, which I heartily commend to everybody. It's a small, it's an American masterpiece. I think the best novel of the last twenty years about a family in Queens, New York, uh, and, uh, and, and what happens to them. And the best nonfiction book I've read this year is Brett Stevens' American Retreat, which is a, which is a, a really remarkable and very readable piece of work. So that, I've now covered the waterfront. Don't go see A Delicate Balance on Broadway with Glenn Close. Not that anybody who is listening is anywhere near thinking of going to see A Delicate Balance on Broadway with Glenn Close. But don't do it if you're thinking about it because it's okay. awful. Done. But, uh, oh, Rob and I both saw and loved on Broadway, if you come to New York for your holiday season, you can take it with you, revival oh, of a great. 30s play a by play. Kaufman and Hart. Yeah. It's a perfect play and a beautiful, a great, amusing, a lively comedy. production. Yeah. So, and if you have uh, kids, you cannot, do, you cannot do better than Matilda. No, That's you right. cannot do better than Matilda, even if you don't have kids. Matilda yeah. is a fantastic piece of work. So I guess we've come to the end of, have. of a long podcast that we have redeemed with our positive good feeling at the end, the, um, you know, some of the uh, uh, darker stuff at yeah, the beginning. I recommend uh, to all listeners that you listen to this podcast backwards. <laughs> yes. Which is the advice they can yeah. only get when they reach the yes. end. Yes. So yes. start now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a, it's a, I think it's a – you know, they'll be able to do that in the future. There will be an app for oh, that. In the future, you'll just stick it right in your head. Yeah. It will be yeah. right to your brain. Because you know, as they say in the Plan 9 from Outer Space, because the future is the place where we are all going to live someday. Which is true. So thank you very much, you guys. Fellas, Have a wonderful soon. Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Merry Christmas. Merry, Merry Christmas. Christmas. Kwanzaa. Wonderful New Year. Have fun. Have fun in New Orleans. Rob, have Rob, are fun. The, is the wallpaper peeling like Barton Fink for you right now? It, it kind of, a little bit, yeah. <laughs> That's how I'm going to imagine you, whether it is or not. That's how I imagine myself. There we go. So uh, was- thanks, thanks again, and have a thank you for listening throughout this 2014. And thank one- you to Harry Shave. And thank you to Harry Shave, the best 
Christmas present that you can get. I'm shaving my back with it right now. (laughs) (laughs) See you, fellas. Bye, guys. There are so many beautiful Christmas songs around and so few Hanukkah songs. So I thought we'd try this one for you. Put on your yarmulke. Here comes Hanukkah. So much Hanukkah to celebrate Hanukkah. Yeah. Hanukkah is the festival of lights. Instead of one day of presents, we have a crazy night. When you feel like the only kid in town without a Christmas tree, here's a list of people who are Jewish, just like you and me. David Lee Roth lights the menorah. So do James Conker Douglas and the late Dinah Shora. Guess who eats together at the Carnegie Deli? Bowser from Shanana and Arthur Fonzarelli. Paul Newman's half Jewish, Holy Horn is too. Put them both together, what a fine looking Jew. You don't have to deck the halls with Jingle Bell Rock. Cause you can spin a dreidel with Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock, both Jewish. Put on your yarmulke, here comes Hanukkah. So much Hanukkah to celebrate Hanukkah. O.J. Simpson, not a Jew. But guess who is? Hall of Famer Rod Carew. We got Ann Landers. And her sister, dear Abby. Harrison Ford's a quarter Jewish, not too shabby. Some people think that Ebenezer Scrooge is. Well, he's not, but guess who is? All three Stooges. So many Jews are on my list. Tom Cruise isn't, but Jesus Christ is. Put on your yarmulke, here comes Hanukkah, so much Hanukkah to celebrate Hanukkah, yeah. Festival of Lights. Instead of one day of presents, we have a crazy night. So tell your friend Veronica, it's time to celebrate Hanukkah. And don't forget Hanukkah, on this lovely, lovely Hanukkah. Just drink your gin and tonica, don't smoke your marijuana. Ricochet. Join the conversation.